James's Gospel, and it's chapter 5, verses 7 to 12. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and the spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no, otherwise you will be condemned. Um, I'm going to try and do this without the resonance. Uh, if you see that happening, wave at me. I'll try and move the microphone again. We are getting towards the end of the book of James. We've had a series in it for a couple of months now. And the near, end is near. This is the penultimate chunk of James. And as we get towards the end, James himself points us towards the end of all things, the return of the Lord Jesus. So we read in verse 7 of that reading about the Lord's coming and then at the end of verse 8 that the Lord's coming is near verse 9 the, ju- the judge is standing at the door and at the end of verse 12 we are pointed towards condemnation that the judge brings judgments condemnation before you think oh it's going to be one of those rather heavy sermons let me remind us that this all remind ourselves that the Lord's coming uh, as judge is wonderful good news, not something to be terrified by. At his first coming, Jesus healed the sick, he fed the hungry, he guided the wayward, he exposed the proud and the selfish, and of course, above all, he died for the sins of the world. Wonderful good news. Likewise, at his second coming, it will be good news. All of those wonderful traits about him that we saw at his first coming magnified Uh, to a glorious scale as he's revealed fully at that time. All the goodness of God will then be seen clearly shining through Jesus to its full extent. And a key part of that goodness is his equity, his judgment, his fairness. At that time, he will deal with all of the evil, wrong, sinful things in the world and bring judgment. So, Every unconvicted murder, every unsolved child abduction, every unpunished war crime, every unresolved domestic dispute, he will bring judgment, full, final, and perfect. The all-wise judge will bring full equity, without which, of course, there could be no true 
heaven, there could be no true new creation because there would be unresolved disputes, unresolved tensions and problems in that community. Instead, there will be resolution and full equity when the judge comes, who, as James says, is already standing at the door. The return of Jesus as judge is such good news, I wonder if we shouldn't sing a bit more about it. We're a little bit uh, apprehensive sometimes to sing of judgments, uh, worried that people will take it slightly the wrong way. One of my favourite hymns on the subject is by John Newton, Day of Judgment, Day of Wonders. And actually, it's such a beautiful hymn, it actually merits my uh, full quotation. Uh, and you can enjoy the, both the poetry, but also, more importantly, the message that this hymn brings. Day of judgment, day of wonders, hark the trumpet's awful sound. Louder than ten thousand thunders shakes the vast creation round. How the summons, how the summons will the sinner's heart confound. See the judge our nature wearing, clothed in majesty divine. You who long for his appearing, then shall say, this God is mine. Gracious saviour, gracious saviour, own me in that day as thine. At his call the dead awaken, rise to life from earth and sea, all the powers of nature shaken, by his look prepare to flee. Careless sinner, careless sinner, what will then become of thee? But to those who have confessed, loved and served the Lord below, he will say, come near ye blessed, see the kingdom I bestow, you forever you forever shall my love and glory know. Wonderful good news that the judge is coming back to bring equity and salvation. And James is not unusual at all amongst the New Testament writers in pointing us at the end of his book towards that last day, that future hope. Paul ends Romans, of course, looking at the future resurrection Uh, by Jesus, who has been raised already, the first fruits. Peter likewise ends his second book looking at the soon return of the Lord, who is not slow and does not delay. So there's an apostolic consensus, uh, an agreement between all of the writers of the New Testament about all sorts of things that we've seen as we've preached through James, about grace and works, about morality, and now about the future, about eschatology. Different ways, different emphases, that they have within those books, the Holy Spirit graciously allowing their characters to speak in slightly different ways uh, about those core truths that they all agree on. Now, the presenting issue that we've been facing throughout the book of James uh, is that of trials. We started off uh, several months ago now with difficult trials that you're facing uh, about various things. We don't know exactly what the trials were faced by the readers, the first readers of James. Uh, They could have been Moral trials, relational trials, medical trials, uh, particularly probably confessional trials about persecution for their sake of their faith. And whatever these trials were, James told them, ask for wisdom from God about how to deal with these things. Act faithfully, do the right thing, do, be doers of the word rather than just listeners, and humble yourselves before the face of God. And now his closing reassurance in the face of those trials and the trials that we face as well, uh, of various sorts, is that Jesus is coming back soon. We don't have to worry overly much about these trials because we know that the end of all things is coming 
when everything will be put right by the just judge of all. And that's a truth that we do state regularly in the seventh article of our Apostles' Creed, when we declare from thence, from heaven, he shall come again to judge the quick and the dead, or to judge the living and the dead. Uh, We've said it in slightly longer form today in the Nicene Creed. Uh, He shall return in glory, we've said, to judge the living and the dead. I hope we feel excited when we declare that, um, rather than just somber and mournful. In regard to moral trials, uh, when we declare that the, the judge, the Lord, is coming, we can think, ah, oh, he's, yes, he's going to open the eyes of all people to the particular realities of the world. He's going to make clear this or that debated moral issue. And as to the torrents that we see of low-level immorality, that's going to be put to an end. Wonderful news that the Lord is coming. He's returning to judge. In relation to um, relational, interpersonal trials, when we declare the Lord is going to return, we can know there's going to be peace, at last, peace between the nations, an end to bitter partisan prejudices and concord to families where there's been generational strife or even just low-level discord. In relation to religious trials, trials of persecution, when we declare that the Lord is coming, he's coming back to judge. That's good news because our faith will be made sight. Our whole course of life will be vindicated and there'll be an end to the suffering of God's people for the sake of their faith. And of course, the church here on earth will be reunited with the church at rest as the church triumphant. Wonderful good news when we declare that future coming. So it's certainly an exciting and a joyful prospect that James writes about uh, in these closing verses of his book, about the judge being at the door, the Lord being near at hand. And there's three particular attitudes he wants to bring out uh, in relation to that truth. Patience, contentment, and honesty. So firstly, Jesus' return calls us to patience uh, in verses 7 and 8. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Christians can and should be marked by a particular patience in all of our relations with others. Because we know that the judge is coming, we can have a certain calm about all that we do. Now, this isn't a super-spiritual detachment and otherness from the things of the world. We're very much called to be in the world, but not of the world, not to have the, the world's same level of care and worry about things, because we know that there's something more important at stake. Amidst all of our involvement in the wor- world, we can have a peace and a calm and a patience about our interactions. And the illustration here is the farmer the farmer who waits for the fruit to come rather than fretting and worrying about it not having come already. He doesn't just jump at the first sign of the ear coming out and grab it away and try and make a bit of bread out of that. Instead, he knows that after winter and spring, eventually summer and autumn will come and will bring the fullness of the fruits. He is calm, he is patient, 
as he waits for that time. He looks out over his fields, and he knows that although he doesn't currently have a crop to harvest or to sell, he will eventually do so. And so in the same way, we can be patient when we look out over the world, whether our own affairs or those of others, the affairs of the nations. And we can know that although things aren't quite right right now, eventually they will be. We don't have to over-worry when plans go askew. We don't have to fret too much when we do see evil, for the time being, prospering in the world. And we don't need to feel the need to sort things out all by ourselves because we know that the judge will come and sort things out fully and finally himself. We don't need to explode at every particular offence and infringement of our rights because we know that the present world is like that, but eventually the judge will come and set everything right. So next time we feel angered by having to fill out a long bureaucratic form about something fairly minor, or we feel the tension rising in a conversation, or we feel we've asked, been asked to do a hundred things before lunchtime at work, or maybe on this mothering Sunday we feel irked by our mothers um, wanting something done or something uh, returned to them, then we can have the farmer attitude. <clears throat> the farmer attitude who looks out on his fields, knows that things aren't quite right right now, but one day they will be. We know that Jesus is coming back, and therefore we can be patient in our dealings. Secondly, Jesus' return calls us to contentment, patience and contentment. Verse 9, don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Let me read the word grumble in the Bible. We have a, a Bible reaction to it. I think Exodus and Numbers, the nation of Israel grumbling in the wilderness against Moses and Aaron, and uh, by extension against God for having led them there to this place without water, without nice food, when they had their cucumbers and their plenty in the land of Egypt. Grumbling. Within James, there's also a a thought we'll have back to chapter 4, where we read about the quarrels and fights amongst the Christians that James is writing to because of covetousness and because of them wanting this or that rather than being content instead with what they had. Contentment is what Israel needed in the wilderness with what God was giving them and how God was sustaining them. Contentment is what the receivers of James' letter needed uh, rather than fighting each other and being covetousness, covetous. And contentment, likewise, is what we need rather than grumbling against one another about this or that. Because the judge is at the door, as he says. It's never a good thing to let the judge see you grumbling and fighting against each other. I was asking uh, the 9.30 congregation if any of them had been to a courtroom recently. A few of them had. I didn't quiz them about why they'd been to court recently. I uh, suspend my um, suspicions about that. I'm sure they were uh, in the right anyway. Uh, but when we go to a courtroom, the whole atmosphere changes when the judge walks in. Before the judge walks in, there might be conversations going all over the place. There might even be a bit of bickering between the parties. But when he comes in, there is silence. We go from a room full of people using everyday language, maybe even vulgar language, if there's particularly fractious disputes, to very formal, uh, prepared language used before the judge. 
from a disparate focus with all sorts of conversations going on, maybe in the press gallery, in the public gallery, amongst the parties, with the barristers shuffling their papers at the front, to suddenly a unitary focus on the judge who's just walked into the room. And that's because the judge has the power to decide what happens in that courtroom. He's the one who's going to hear the arguments, weigh them, and make a verdict. He has the power. Likewise, Jesus has all the power in the universe. And so we should know that when he's ready to walk in, he is ready to give judgment. It's very easy for us to have all sorts of things to grumble about to each other when we forget that the judge is at the door. Why are we doing things this or that way as a church? Why is he so slow at doing this? Why is she so particular about us doing that? Why do they think they can get away with doing that? When will those people do what they've been told to a thousand times already? And we can apply those sorts of grumbles to all sorts of situations in church, to rotors or to uh, family life, how do we, we spend our money and spending habits in general, moral attitudes, child-raising, politics, certainly to COVID and all the arrangements we've had to make to do with COVID. So easy to grumble, 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 uh, to mutter about different things being not quite right. But verse 9 says, do not grumble, don't grumble, because the judge is at the door. He's about to walk in and he needs there to be silence in the courtroom and for us to listen to him. The judge is round the corner. I know I have that temptation to grumble myself as well about things that um, I can't and shouldn't change anyway. Um, I have that temptation frequently. But just as we had that farmer attitude about patience, about being uh, patient for the crops to come, as in for the Lord to return, so we need a court attitude about grumbling. When we feel the temptation rising to grumble about something, to complain, to moan about some petty situation in an ungodly way, let's think we're in the courtroom. The door of the judge chamber is just creaking open and the judge must be at the door. He's about to walk in. Let's honour him by not grumbling. And thirdly and finally, Jesus' return calls us to honesty. Verse 12. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. Now, this isn't talking about swearing in our 21st century sense of the word, about uh, not rude words, blasphemous words uh, used in conversation. Instead, it's about swearing by things, by things in heaven and earth. That is oath-taking. And in Israel, in the first century, in the context of this letter, it was a big problem, as we know from the gospel, where Jesus preaches against petty distinctions made by people in their oath-taking, their swearing, saying that you say you can swear by the temple, it doesn't mean anything, but swear by the gold in the temple, it means a huge amount. You think you can swear by the altar, it means nothing, but swear by the sacrifice on the altar, and suddenly it becomes very important. Uh, Swear by heaven or by the throne of heaven. And Jesus wanted to prevent people from doing this, from taking these sacred things and using them for their mundane, everyday activities. It shouldn't be needed. The word should be good enough by itself. Both Jesus and James uh, extol us to honesty, to simply saying yes, meaning yes, and no, meaning no, which is how a different translation puts it, uh, rather than the NIV. 
We shouldn't need to use other things to guarantee our word. It should be enough by itself. Because, of course, we will be judged either way. Whether we say something with an oath, uh, it will be judged just as much as if we say something without an oath. If we say we're going to do something, we will be judged on that, whether we did it or not. Whether we, if we say we do something and we say, oh, I swear by my mother's life, uh, that would be judged just as much at the end. A false word without an oath is just as liable to condemnation. Christians, of course, saved from judgment by the blood of Christ, but we should still fear the censure, the condemnation of the judge, uh, even as those who are saved, when we do the wrong thing, we should seek to please him in all that we do. The different translation I've referred to of this verse 12, let your yes be yes and your no be no, is something that's always rung around my head, particularly in regards to my commitments, my diary, my appointments. Have I said I'm going to be somewhere by some time? Have I said I'm going to do something by a certain time for somebody? Let my yes be yes and my no be no. Let me go ahead with my commitment. About 10 years ago, lots of events that were happening seemed to be organized through Facebook, a few still are, of course, and you had three options for how to respond. You could say yes to an invitation, maybe to an invitation, or no. And there was a bit of a joke that went round that if you said yes on Facebook, it meant maybe. If you said maybe, it meant no. And if you said no, it meant why on earth have you invited me to this thing? There should be no such uh, distinctions, no such disconnections and dissimulations amongst Christians. Our yes should be yes, our maybe where it has to be said should be maybe, and our no should be no. One of my favourite descriptions of 18th century English society is that it was a society bound together by oaths. Now, does that mean that it was an ungodly society, that people weren't going ahead with their commitments where they didn't use oaths? Well, no, it's, it's a term used just to say that actually their words were as good as oaths. That was the phrase, wasn't it? A man's word was his bond. And that was the character of the society. Undertakings were given in such good faith that they were always kept, whether in commerce or education or healthcare or in public service. People did what they said they would, which is certainly not something we can count on today, sadly. Of course, there were a few specific situations, like marriage and uh, courtrooms and the church, where oaths uh, taking, doing something under oath particularly happened. And I actually did two of those three myself in this past year. Does that mean that I am liable to condemnation? Or if I went to a court, I had to put my hand on the Bible and swear to say the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, I'd be liable to condemnation? Well, no, in this respect, um, I'm not worried, and I'm actually reassured uh, by the 39th and final article of the church, which refers to and teaches us on how to react to those sorts of situations. It reads, As we confess that vain and rash swearing is forbidden Christian men by our Lord Jesus Christ and James, his apostle, so we judge that Christian religion does not prohibit, but that a man may swear when the magistrate requires in a cause of faith and charity, so it be done according to the prophet's teaching in justice, judgment, and truth. I know that if I went to court and I had to say anything, I, my yes should be yes and my no should be no. I should do exactly what I say. I should be truthful in everything I say, irrespective of whether I put my hand on the Bible and say I will or not. 
My conscience isn't affected, though, if the law, if the magistrate, as that article puts it, requires me to do that oath, to put my hand in the Bible and say that that's the case. Fair enough if the law asks me to do that. According to my own conscience, though, whether I do that or not, let my yes be yes and my no be no. That's what Jesus and James require. The judge is standing at the door. We should seek to please him because we know that soon he will enter and preside over his courtroom. Shall we pray now and come to him? Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the soon return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for his revelation in all his glory at that time. We pray that it would be a joyful thing for us to remember and to think about that day. Prepare us in heart and mind as best you can for that day. We pray that as we wait for it, we would be patient. As we wait for it, we wouldn't grumble, we'd be content. And as we wait for it, we would be honest in all of our dealings. For Jesus' sake and for the good of our own souls. Amen.